Let me address prodigals again there for a second. As we were praying, I, I saw it. We've taught on prodigals over and over and over again in this church because most, most of us will have some kind of prodigal in our life at one point or another. It may not be our son, like in Luke chapter 15's parable of the prodigal. We understand a prodigal to be someone who was once in fellowship with God, and then they backslide and go live sinfully. Now, technically, the word prodigal means to waste resources. So we call him a prodigal, but the Bible doesn't call him a prodigal. We call him a prodigal, or actually theologians do. Your old King James Version, probably the footnote at the top of the page, calls him a prodigal. Because what he did was he wasted his dad's money on riotous living. A prodigal doesn't just sleep with prostitutes. A prodigal can go live beyond their means. You can come to church, be on the worship team, and be a prodigal because you're wasting God's money on keeping up with the Joneses. You can waste God's money trying to be a vacation chaser. You can, you can be a prodigal chasing conferences. So hear that clearly. You can be a prodigal wasting God's resources that he gave you for other things, chasing conferences. I once knew a minister who told in a sermon one time he went $90,000 in debt chasing conferences. That's a prodigal. If you can't afford it, don't go. Thank God we can stream stuff now. Uh, you can't be in every meeting. But coming back to this concept of the prodigal, uh, prodigals are people who know better but choose worse. And so a prodigal is someone who knows who the father is, who knows what the inheritance looks like, and then chooses to abandon the goodness of father's house, the protection of father's house, the doctrine of father's house, the supply of father's house to go do what they want. And so in the story in Luke 15, the prodigal gets all the way into a foreign country. We don't know what country. It just took a long time to get there. And they wasted all their father's resources. We would call that grace and anointing and giftings. And really, from the moment they leave their father's house, the prodigal just slowly descends. They just keep taking a step down. They haven't hit bottom yet because there's still some money in the bag. There's still some grace on their soul. There's still some anointing in their, in their life. So they haven't hit bottom yet, but they get way out there and they hit bottom. And we don't know how long that prodigal was in the pig pen, literally probably knee deep or thigh deep in manure, slopping hogs, eating hog food. Otherwise, he would have starved to death before he finally came to himself. Now, so listen to carefully if you want your prodigal back. The father never chased the prodigal. The father did not mail the prodigal money. The father did not send spies out to check on the prodigal. The father did not receive telegrams or messages back from the prodigal. Many prodigals will want to message you from their hellhole. They'll want to connect with you, not because they want to repent, but because misery loves company. They don't want to be right. They want to be self-justified. And so when the prodigal is messaging you from their manure bin, delete. Don't answer. Don't entertain. Block. Just block them. Prodigals are not stupid. It's not like they're special needs with low IQs and can't do simple math. Prodigals know what they're doing. They know where they got. The total abandonment of the Father, who in that parable is God Almighty. God Almighty turned his back on the prodigal. God Almighty 
turn his back. When the prodigal has the father or the mother or the siblings completely turn their back, now you, you can pretty much hope for biblically and maybe, maybe obtain repentance. But as long as you entertain the prodigal with text messaging and you allow them to spew their manure breath into your ear and to almost disciple you in the lies that convince them to go eat feces. Like you're listening to the lies that convinced the loved one that it was spiritually acceptable to eat spiritual feces. You can't eat hog food without getting a little bit of poop on it. It's high in fiber, you know, but it's not really tasty. Why would you fellowship with such an apostate? Because of emotions and spiritual immaturity. The heartstrings. Oh, but that's my friend. Oh, but that's my brother. Oh, but that's my son. Oh, but that's my former mentor. When the Bible says mark those that cause divisions and offenses and have nothing to do with them, what part of nothing do we fail to get? If you have to, in your phone, just change their name to prodigal, reprobate, apostate, heretic, demon, familiar spirit, death, poison, Satan. So when, oh, Satan's texting again. I know I gave birth to that little devil, but I can't fellowship with them. And maybe you need to send a final message, kind of like a shot across their bow and say, you know how to repent. We're terminating all digital communication until you know how to fully repent, because I'm not going to be partaker of your sin. All this person wants to do is to worm and weasel their way back into your naive life to contaminate you and to bring with them their familiar spirits. We have fellowship with one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. There are vile people out there. We love them, but I can't afford to bring contamination into my home. As for me in my house, if you're not in my house, go away. As for me in my house, we serve the Lord. I owe you nothing if you don't serve my God. Especially if you came from my God, you left my God, and now you're defiling my God. I really owe you less than nothing except to pray for you. And my prayer will be judgment, judgment, judgment until you repent because I want to see you saved. I want to see you repent. You know better. How can you know better and choose to mock our God and choose to mock our faith and choose to mock our family? How? how? Because you have a devil. Now, 1 Corinthians 5 says you, you can't fellowship with these people. Let's read that list real quick. Sometimes we need a refresher. Faith comes by hearing. If I don't touch sin from the pulpit, you'll live with it in your private life. 1 Corinthians 5, 9. I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must you needs go out of the world. Paul says it's safer to fellowship with pagans than some believers. That's how we win the lost. Now, again, we give you the balance. We fellowship with the lost on our terms, not their terms. We fellowship with the lost on our terms, not their terms. But you're, you're safer having lunch with a pagan fornicator than a Christian fornicator. Because Christian fornicators have to violate and sear the Holy Spirit who's supposed to be in their life in order to fornicate or drink or be a drunkard or, 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 or. Verse 11, but now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother, 
That means a brother in Christ. Could be a, a biological sibling, a biological child, biological parent. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer, that word railer is actually blasphemio, blasphemous. You don't just blaspheme God. To blaspheme means to slander, to destroy, to ruin. You can blaspheme the name of your mama. You can blaspheme your pastor. You can blaspheme your church. You can blaspheme your sibling. A railer, just someone who brings railing accusations. We don't fellowship in any form whatsoever with these people. We cut them off. Romans 16 says we mark them. And we keep them at arm's distance, almost like a poisonous snake. Not that we handle snakes at all, but you know, some snakes you don't worry too much about because that's just a, uh, that's a rat snake, that's corn snake, that's a black snake. And then there's other snakes here in Middle Tennessee. They have patterns on their back like copperheads, long, excuse me, short, stubby, fat snakes that smell like cucumbers, very venomous. And then the timber rattler, they have marks on their back, and you know when you see those marks on their back in the diamond-shaped head, you mark that one, and you're like, uh-uh. You know, if that one's in my garden, I'm inside. If the black snake's in my garden, eh. The green snake's in my garden, eh. But the timber rattler, no. Some folks we mark as serpents. And if they're whispering, they're poisoning. As a pastor, I receive many texts every day from many people. And demons text through people. And you can pick up on it. You can feel the venom. You can feel the vibe. You can also, I get texts from evangelists and pastors all, every day that are so encouraging. Sometimes they're about nine pages long, and I just say, amen, and I don't read it because I don't have time to. But I think, I can tell you're a grandfather. you got nothing else to do this morning. i got kids in the house. Hallelujah, love you, bless you, see you. And like, I don't have time to read that. You can read the encouragement from a brother in Christ. You can also hear the venom of a demonized texter. Why would you read that? Why would you read it? Obey the scripture. Delete. Block. Amen. Part of the judgment of God is that righteous people move away from that person under judgment. So now we have to ask ourselves, if God is speaking to righteous people, let's just pick on Mr. Greg here. Let's say Greg turns apostate. He turns hostile. He turns blasphemer and railer. And all of a sudden, God begins to resist Mr. Greg, and the judgment of God befalls Mr. Greg. And those that are righteous and spiritual, we, we realize we can't get around him anymore because the Spirit of God is saying, move your tent away, move your tent away, move your tent away. If everybody who walks with God is moving away from Greg, why would you think you have permission to go camp beside him? Except that maybe you don't walk with God, or the emotional pull is just so strong you feel like maybe you can save them. But if God says, move your tent away, an earth's about to open up and swallow somebody in some calamity or other. If God's hand is against somebody, we can't be for them. If God's hand is against somebody, we can't be for them. And we would do well to honor and fear our God and move our tent as far away as possible. Prayer covers lots of distance in the spirit, so we can pray from over there safely. But don't let them speak to you. You're not going to convert them. They will convert you. They are more convinced of their delusion than we are sometimes of our own scripture. So let's keep reading here. A railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. All extortion isn't money. Sometimes it's emotional manipulation, emotional extortion. 
They want one thing out of us. Not everybody wants money out of you. They want other things. Attention, accolades, praise. They want you on their side. That's extortion. The heart of it's the same. Maybe they don't need money. Maybe they do. But if somebody calls themselves a brother, acts like they're right with God, acts like they're all pious, and they act this way, this verse says, with such a one know not to eat. You don't have permission to even sit down and eat with them. Well, that sounds really judgy. Okay, well, go hug a tree or something, because verse 12 says, For what have I do to judge them also that are outside? Do not you judge them that are within? The implied is yes, we judge those on the inside of the church. We're not worried about the pagan. They're already judged and cursed. Our job is to win them, but we do have to police our own. Don't let somebody who is used to be fluent in Christianese come along and manipulate you into their sin. You have to mark them. Stand against them. Say, I love you, but you're not going to manipulate me. I love you, but you're out of sorts with God. What they want to do is come next to you and suck your spiritual warmth off your life. Yes. You have peace, they don't. And by them communicating with you, they partake of your peace. And you partake of their filth. We've all had those relationships where we could communicate with somebody and we received encouragement from them. We, we received strength from them. We couldn't wait to get a phone call into them or a text message from them because it strengthened us. And then there are those people that if you touch, they will suck the life out of you. I was recently visiting some friends, and they had a neighbor over. And I didn't know the neighbor. And uh, I told my wife, I said, that neighbor's got some weird juju magumbo on them. And so I, I'd walk in and out of the kitchen, and um, that, I'd get around the neighbor. My insides would just absolutely tighten up. I don't know what's going on. And so I'm walking through the other side, came back. And uh, my friend said, well, Chris can maybe answer that question. I said, yeah, I'll answer whatever questions you got. So I sit down and the neighbor says, can you tell when people have demons? <laughs> oh, so that's what this is all about. All right, got it. Yes, I can. <laughs> and there are a range of demon possession. And so we, I taught this individual about demons a little bit, but I thought... Yeah, this is why me, I can't even be in the same room with you because my presence and your presence makes me tighten up. It's adding nothing to my life. It's taking things out of me. And yet my presence is making you curious. Can I figure out what's going on in your life? And what will that do for you? So my point with this is uh, interactions aren't always just neutral interactions. The realm, the realm we live in is just supernatural like that. The realm we live in is just supernatural, and there are those that would want to spy out our liberty and ruin our freedom in Christ and ruin our peace and ruin our joy. And the Bible says to seek peace and pursue it. And if a person doesn't produce peace, you don't seek them. You have to mark those that cause divisions and have nothing to do with them. Now, coming back to Mr. Greg. Hypothetically, he's not backsliding, but let's say he's backsliding. He's sliding. He's not just backsliding. He's hostile. That's a different level altogether. It's one thing to backslide and say, listen, I, I love you guys, but I just want to go do some sin. It's another thing to say, I want to do sin, and how dare you judge me? That stupid church and that cult pastor of yours and blah, 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 and just spew, spew, spew. Just, if you're going to be a little pagan, just go off and sin in your little corner like a dog that wants to die and leave us alone. But when there's a hostility, it's not just carnality. Now we have a demon. Yes. 
that wants to rail out accusations and vile blah, 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 blah. Well, one of the ways God will bring judgment upon that individual, in this case, Mr. Greg, is even family begins to flee. Children. I mean, Mr. Greg, what would that do if your kids quit communicating with you and they said, Dad, you're backslidden. Even your grandkids. Papa, we love you, but you're backslidden. What, 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 your wife, honey, I love you, but I'm living upstairs. You live downstairs till you get right with God. Everybody in your life moves away from you. We become the voice of God. We become the witness saying judgment. But if we, because we love Papa, husband or dad, if we violate the Holy Spirit, because we know it's just, you know, it's the holidays. Can't we just be family? And now I'll quote you Jesus. That's a good guy to quote, right? Who is my family? Who is my mama? Oh, not so virgin Mary. Who is my mama? But those that do the will of my father, those that do the will of my father, those that do the will of my father. That's my real family. So I don't care who I share DNA with. Who does the will of my father? That's where we draw the line. Everything else we can cut a while off. Amen. So just a reminder of how the doctrine of prodigality works and how to get a prodigal back. Don't let them talk to you. Cut them off. Tell them, you know how to repent because you were well taught. But right now you're denying Christ. So until you want to repent, we're done with you. What? 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 No, I'm sorry. Done. Done. Block them. Because they're going to try to get into your peace and your joy any way they can. You got no business with that. Seek peace, pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. All right. Enough of that little exhortation and nay, I say warning. It's the holidays. Well, you know, we serve God 365 days, not just on the holidays. We serve God year round. We serve God year round. Turn with me to the book of Numbers. We started teaching a while back uh, before I went to Africa on the doctrine of confession because I want to try to eventually bring this into the New Testament and talk about the doctrine of faith and uh, you can have what you say. But it's also good to build, to, to build a big foundation on the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. You should too. We're not of the modern heresy that says the Old Testament is junk. Throw it away. Uh, if you listen to some of these guys with their funny accents from overseas ministries, you won't have much left to read in your Bible but the book of Maps because they've said don't read the red letters and now they're nitpicking the epistles because they're too judgy and too legalistic. And that's because they're based on the Old Testament and they quote a lot of the Old Testament. We're going to build our doctrine on the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And you can actually build some pretty good doctrine from the book of maps if you understand the geography, because there's a lot of symbolism in the geography. It's good to know where certain cities are. Numbers chapter 30. So we started talking, or the last time I ministered on this subject, we talked about vows and oaths. Remember that? Vows and oaths. This is going to be a little bit of a review. And since we don't have church tonight, uh, we may go till 3.30. No, we won't because I want you to stay awake. Now, what was fun is that I had you all alert talking about sin in the camp right now with prodigality. If I switch up and just teach doctrine, some of you will disconnect because you'll find it boring. Boo is right. (laughs) And I don't, it kind of conditions me as a pastor that when I lose a church, then I got to hammer on sin to wake you up. It would be better for both of us if you would just be hungry for whatever is being taught. You've never heard a sermon on vows or oaths till I taught it last time. 
You never heard a sermon out of the book of Numbers chapter 30 or the Old Testament doctrine of oaths and how you swear a vow, a vow, and swear an oath and who you do what to who. You don't have that doctrine, so I don't know why you get bored with it. And if that's the foundation of modern faith doctrine, shouldn't we understand it? Might it improve our ability to believe and receive and to speak to mountains and sycamine trees and demons and what have you? Sure. So I don't understand our boredom. I don't like having always hammer on sin. I'd like to teach us doctrine so we can get out of sin. All right. So we're talking about the doctrine of confession. The very first thing, quick review, the very first doctrine it builds is from Exodus that we confess sin. If you can't confess your sin, don't worry about confessing anything else and receiving it. In fact, throughout the entire New Testament, healing and confession of sin is tied hand in hand. Jesus would heal, go and sin no more. James chapter 5, paraphrase shall save the sick, Lord raise them up. They have committed any trespasses, they shall be forgiven. Pray one for another and confess your faults that you might be healed. There's a confession that is required to receive healing. Not just a confession of the word, but also a confession of sin. And then we talked about there's a confession of your testimony. As Deuteronomy 26 speaks of, we constantly rehearse our testimony. A Syrian ready to die was my father. A pagan from wherever ready to die was my mother or my husband. And then we got born again. We, have a con- we hold fast the confession of our faith. Everybody should know your testimony. They should know your tongue talkers kind of church you go to? Non-denominational, spirit-filled, tongue-talking. What does that mean? They ask, now you can witness. Why would you say, oh, you know, like a little mealy-mouthed panty waist. Yeah, you know, it's a a Christian church, you know. (laughs) We're going to, if with our time today, we may cover blasphemy a little bit. That tracks into blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Because blasphemy isn't just saying GD or J.C., or the British would say bloody, which is a blasphemy against the blood of Christ. They use blood and bloody as an invocation of the blood of Christ. They use it like we would say G.D. So to the Brit, to hear bloody, to the British Christian, is, is horrific to their ears. We're not conditioned for that. We hear bloody as an adjective. That's a bloody mess. Well, in the operating room, it was. But for a Brit to hear bloody mess, they think I just dropped the F-bomb and GD all wrapped into one. That's their blasphemy. It's not ours. Blasphemy is a lot more than that. So we want to make sure we avoid all of them altogether. We had confession of faith. And so that brought us to this, the next doctrine as we're working our way through the Torah, the, uh, excuse me, the, the Pentateuch Torah, is that we have this, this next use of our mouth, which is to vow vows unto God or swear oaths unto men. And the whole picture of this is basically Jesus Christ gave us the book end and he summarized it by saying, let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is where we really fail as modern believers because our words mean nothing. That's why for the modern, say, Calvinists who are really, somebody said Calvinists are mad at everybody, even themselves. (laughs) That's kind of a joke, a theological joke. Uh, Folks don't realize in our modern society how important our words are. So they have no doctrine for words because we've gotten to such a place in society that if I'm in a, any kind of contract, I have to sign legal contracts that are usually 20 pages long and I'm signing and initialing 30 places. That's supposed to bind me to my word. Yet with a good weasel, I mean lawyer, <laughs> you can get out of that. 
and be free from that obligation. We've got to go back, if we're going to be men and women of the Bible, men and women of our word, and see how important this doctrine of swearing oaths and vowing vows was to God, because the concept hasn't changed. Yes, Jesus Christ comes along and says, hey, swear neither by heaven nor earth, nor, nor the temple, nor the gold and the treasury. He actually raises the standard on the Old Testament, and he says what? Let your and your anything other than this comes of the evil one. So we're not free. We're actually under more obligation. Because now if I say yes, I'm bound. I don't have to swear an oath or vow a vow. Now if I say no, I'm bound. Except no Christian really believes that. Not in our culture. Because we don't commit to nothing. And when we give our word, we know it doesn't mean nothing because we're not going to show up. We were just kind of Southerners trying to make everybody happy like Mama taught us. Got to make everybody happy. Got to make them smile. Don't let them talk bad about the family. Our family's messed up. They all talk about us anyway. So honestly, the Lord Jesus raises the standard because now we don't have vows or oaths like they did on the old covenant. Jesus said, just if you say yes, that's it. Or you're of the evil one. And that doesn't really help us in our feel-good doctrine, does it? Because Jesus, I mean, if you know who you are, Jesus is saying you're all acting like the evil one because you say no, but you don't mean it with your kids. How many times have we been half devil with our kids? We told them no, but they broke us down and we gave them a yes. How many times have we been the evil one with our kids because we told them yes, but we didn't intend on keeping our word, so we gave them a no. So th that's the end of the gospel. Yay, so free. No, more bound. But let's understand the heart of swearing oaths and vowing vows because the doctrine is summarized in this. Keep your word. If you confess it, you're obligated to it. So let's, let's bog down a little bit into vows and see if we have time to look at oaths. So Numbers 30, verse 2. This is kind of the doctrine if a man vow a vow unto the Lord, this tells us who vows are made to. Now, we have what we call wedding vows. I get it. But under the biblical doctrine, a vow is something that is vowed to God. If something is a vow, it's called a votive. That means it's under obligation of a vow. So if a man or woman vows a vow unto the Lord or, uh, uh, or swears an oath to bind his soul with a bond... He shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. That is an Old Testament law that we are still obligated to. Does anybody like someone they can't trust? Does anybody like someone who won't keep their commitments? Then what you're saying is this is a good verse. I want people to give me their word and then not break it. Especially if, you have, if you're a boss and you're having employees especially if you're a pastor and you got a ministries department. You wouldn't believe how many folks in our church still give us their word and then just don't even show up. Of course you do, because you have to fill in for them. They didn't even call in sick. We get it when you're sick, but you just don't even show up. That's a violation of verse 2. And remember, Jesus says your yes is yes or your no is no. Otherwise, it comes of the evil one. So the overall doctrine I'm hammering here is we've got to regain the value of our words by keeping our commitments. Now, see, there's two ditches that this will automatically produce, which we all of us fall into one or the other. There's the one person who overcommits to everything because they're a people pleaser, because they just don't want to say no. 
So they just say, yes, 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 yes. They can't even keep up with their commitments. And because there's so many of them, inevitably, a lot of them fall to the ground. And that's not a good place to be. This doctrine teaches us to make sure we're mindful of the commitments we keep and to put a tracer on it, if you will. Put it in your phone. Put it in a reminder. The busier you get, the more a demand will be put upon you. The harder it is to keep tabs of everything you've committed. We're going to have to learn the powerful word no from time to time and use it. But the other ditch is the person over here who commits to nothing. And you can't do anything with that person because they're, they're noncommittal. They won't commit to a church. They won't commit to a job. They won't commit to a, a dinner party, a wedding shower, a, a baby shower. They won't commit to come help because, of the, well, I, I don't want to give my word and not keep it. Well, at some point, you have to start practicing the giving of your word and the keeping of it. So one ditch is the noncommittal who will they be here Sunday or not? I don't know. We can't build with that person. Neither can a boss. Neither can God. Then the person over here that gives you their word every time you ask, but you know they're not going to keep a third of it, so you just don't even ask anymore. Both are wrong. Somewhere in the middle. And if my whole ministry, if when I die, put on my tombstone, he preached the tale of two ditches, because that just seems to be all I ever teach. <laughs> Maybe make my tombstone shaped like two ditches or something. He died in the middle of the road, and everybody else was in the ditch. The reality is somewhere down the middle. We're careful with the commitments we give, and we keep everyone that we do give. But I want you to see whether you're vowing a vow to the Lord or swearing an oath to man, the point is you bind your soul with a bond. Now, maybe we knew this, and this is why we love songs about chains be broken, because we want to be free from all of our empty, hollow commitments. It's a joke, by the way. You're like, oh, is that really? It's a joke, because when you give your word, you're bound to it, and yet if you'll fulfill your obligation, big or small, it makes you worth more as a human being. Or I should say, makes your word worth more, makes your value. It increases your value. You, people want to be around you. God will promote you. God doesn't promote people that break their word. God doesn't promote people who don't commit. God promotes those who, like he said in Jeremiah 1, who diligently watch after their word to bring it to pass. So what we've got to do as 21st century Americans who have to sign our name a hundred times to buy a car or get a credit card because we're so noncommittal and so irresponsible with our words, we've got to individually begin to give our word and bring it to pass. Now, I think I shared this when I began teaching on this a month ago. The Lord taught me about this 20 years ago in the summer and fall of 2002. And it was such a revelation. And so he so, uh, in a sense, baptized me or died me in this doctrine for so long, and I've since backed off and my colors have faded, but I was so convinced of it, the Lord dealt with me that my words have value and sometimes not much value at all. So if, if that's a word worth writing down, that our words have value, but you know, some of, some of our words in here, your word is worth less than a peso or a rupee or the Russian ruble. What's the exchange rate on a dollar to ruble right now with the Russian war? You know, or the African currencies, the Kenyan shilling or the Ugandan shilling. Or when I was in Nigeria years ago, we exchanged a bunch of money and I felt like a drug dealer. I had massive wads of cash. I have pictures of it. I'd never seen so much money. Then we went to Zimbabwe and I still have $150 billion bills. 
I still have them. They're worth actually a lot of money on eBay because when, when uh, the, they went off the Zim dollar and went to the U.S. dollar in 2009, people just went and threw the money down in the streets and it blew like leaves, they said. But I have, I have multiple billion-dollar bills in Zim dollars. That's worth something, but really not much of anything. You and I have to redeem the value of our words. We do it by keeping them. It's going to take a discipline. You're not going to redeem your currency. We'll call it vocal currency, if you want, verbal currency. We're not going to redeem it overnight. We, have, we do a little bit at a time. We give our word, we keep it. So in this season, 20 years ago, when the Lord told me, your words have value and sometimes not much, or he, Pastor Darren laid hands on me, I fell out, he prophesied over me, said, the Lord's beginning to teach you how to wisely speak those things he puts in your heart, and then the Lord showed me a bunch of stuff about words, and I began studying it for a long time, which led me to a big study on Numbers chapter 30 and the law of vows and oaths. We speak our word, and then we make sure it comes to pass. So what this did for me, and I kid you not, I'd sit down at my desk at work just to do it, and I'd say, I'm going to stand up now. And I'd stand up just to bring it to pass. I'm going to sit down now. And I'd sit down just to bring it to pass. Because I realize we speak so much, and most of it's a lie, because we have no intention of ever keeping it or doing it. And it just takes a little bit of a discipline to realize I should be more guarded with the words I use, especially if Jesus Christ said every idle word, idle means unfruitful, no energy, no power, nothing accomplished. Wouldn't that be about half of our commitments, maybe more? We're going to be judged by God Almighty for empty promises. When you study numbers, which we don't, chapter 30, we won't go into it. It's all these laws about women and their ability to make a vow or an oath or keep a vow or an oath. And in every instance, the husband or the father, either he endorses or doesn't endorse. If the husband endorses, then he, then he re retracts his endorsement. The Bible says, he shall bear the burden of punishment. That's how powerful this is. If you made a vow or an oath under the Old Testament and you didn't keep it, there was a burden of punishment. We don't suffer that burden of punishment readily anymore, so we're very cheap with our words. Husbands, this will help our marriages. Wives, this will help our marriages. Parents, this will help your parenting. And kids are really good. I, I hate it because we teach our kids that we're liars. How many of us have heard kids say, Daddy, you said that should smite our heart. And we should tell them, thank you. I did say that. There is permission in the scriptures to ask for forgiveness or pardon from a commitment. And maybe we need to do that. I've had to do that with my kids because it gets to be too late. They're laying down in bed. Daddy, you said we could do this today. I sure did. Please forgive me because we cannot do it right now. Let's do it tomorrow. And then you're just a little bit more careful to keep your words. In the abundance of anything, it's worth nothing. And in the abundance of our words and the abundance of our promises and our commitments, they really become worth nothing. And so we kind of have this mutually assured social contract where I don't really expect Danielle to keep her word to me because I'm not going to really keep it to her. So we've kind of, as a culture, we've sifted ourselves down to where we know nobody means nothing they say ever by nobody unless I got a 100-page contract and a weak lawyer. Then maybe I meant what I said when I say I'll buy this car and pay for it till it's paid off. We have to be way better than that because Jesus Christ summarized it once. He said, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Otherwise, you're of the evil one, period. There ain't no way to church it up or make that feel any better except to arise to that standard. But that also means we're going to have to get back to a discipline of watching 
what we say. In Jeremiah 1, 12, where it says, what is this you see? I see the, the branch of an almond you've well spoken for. I will hasten my word to perform it. And what it implies in the Hebrew is God diligently watches after all the words he speaks to make sure they come to pass. He also said, come put me in remembrance. Come, let us reason together. We put God in remembrance of his word so he can bring it to pass, though he doesn't lose track of it like we do. We have got to make sure in all of our relationships, on the job, in our families, in the church, we are keeping our word. That's this law of oaths. When you vow a vow or swear an oath, you bind your soul with a bond. You do not break your word. You will do according to all that proceeds out of your mouth. And in this regard, we're supposed to be like God. He is not a man that he should lie. That's Numbers chapter 33. He's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. But everything he's spoken, he will make it good. That means we've got to drive back our overcommitment of man-pleasing and non-committal commitments. And it's going to take practice. But here's the other deal. If we jump to the end of the, the, the message, if we realize how important our word is to us and how much we'll fight to bring it to pass and how late we'll stay up to get the phone call in, the email out, or maybe the cookies baked or whatever, because we promised our kids, it'll begin to remind us how much God wants his word to come to pass. It'll actually help our faith. Brother Hagin said years ago, we don't believe God's word because we don't believe our own. It's hard to believe in a God who makes promises when we know we don't keep our own. And it's a true statement. I heard that before the Lord dealt with me in 2002 about these same issues. I heard that on a tape probably about 96 or 97. So vowing a vow, that's when you make a commitment to God. We, we think uh, two, three, four weeks ago we said vowing a vow is like a spiritual if-then promise. If the Lord will do this, then I will do that. We read about Jacob's vow of tithing there in Genesis 28. If the Lord will do this, 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 then I will give him a tithe of everything. The Lord shall be my God, and I'll give him a tithe. We're still making vows to God to this day. We don't officially call it vows, but we'll say, Lord, if you'll do this for me, I'll do that. Lord, if you'll make a way, I'll follow through. Lord, if you'll bring me a promotion, I'll give you a big offering. Most uh, Dr. Barclay teaches you should make these kind of vows. Lord, if you'll prosper my business, I'll give you half of it. That's a vow. But we don't have the severity of it because we don't teach it. It's, it. Folks, whatever we're not current on falls away in our mainframe. It falls away in our heart. We have to stay committed to the value of our words. And if we make a vow to God, we fulfill it. We pay it. There's a whole set of offerings you can study about in Leviticus that were called votive offerings. These were offerings that were given that, Lord, if you'll do this for me, I'll give you this offering. The summation of it is pay up because God's going to keep his end. If you study the book of Judges, you have Japheth's rash vow where he said, Lord, if you'll deliver the Amalekites into my hand, I will offer you the first thing that comes through my door upon my victory. And the battle is described in two verses. And the rest of the chapter is about how he has to offer his wife, excuse me, his daughter as the burnt offering. I have no interpretation except for he made a promise to God and it never crossed his mind. He could break it like it does ours. Same with Herod. King Herod beheaded John the Baptist because he made a vow. Because of the oath, the oath he swore. He didn't want to kill John the Baptist, but he made a public oath. He swore to his stepdaughter, please me, I'll give you anything you want. 
She says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. He gave his word. If that was a good Pentecostal, oh, you know God knew I didn't mean that. Oh, you know I was just kidding. How come pagans are more severe about keeping their word than word of faith Christians? Southern Baptists, Pentecostals. Why, why are we so flippant with our words? If we understood the way to this, number one, we wouldn't commit so easily, so flippantly. We'd actually pray about things before we committed to them. We'd redeem the value of our words and our faith and our prayers would be a lot more effective. You know, when your dollar's worth more, it takes less to buy something. When your words are worth more, it takes less prayer to accomplish something. Amen. You, if you want to look at uh, Numbers chapter 6, just write these down. I'm just kind of sharing out of my heart. Number 6 talks about the Nazarite vow. This is a vow people would make. Lord, I'm going to set myself apart to you for a season. I'm going to grow my hair and my beard out. And so there's a thing called the Nazarite vow. The book of Acts tells us that Paul had a Nazarite vow. In the New Testament, halfway through Acts, he's still keeping a Nazarite vow. And then he returns, he shaves his head, because that's how you terminate a Nazarite vow. You conclude your vow, you shave your head, and you put that as an offering in the temple. So even the Apostle Paul, the minister of grace, was still honoring a number six Nazarite vow. Then later in the book of uh, Acts 21, I think, James, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, tells Paul, hey, we have four men here that have a vow. Be with them till they shave their head. Again, a reference to the Nazarite vow. So even in the Jerusalem church, church, under James, the pastor, men were keeping vows unto God and then paying them. We, pay, we, we make vows like, Lord, if you'll, if you'll save my baby. Lord, if you'll give me a baby. Lord, if you'll give me a wife. Lord, if you'll save my job. Lord, if, Lord, if, Lord, if, then, then, then. But we don't ever keep the then. And it's one thing to lie to your spouse. It's another thing to lie to God. So we have to redeem the value of our words. I'll be there at Sunday night service. Whatever. I'm going to come to prayer. I'm going to give towards this building program. These are vows. Technically, they're oaths, but maybe you're making the vow to God. We have to redeem the value and the strength of our word. We have to admit our word doesn't have the buying power of early patriarchs. Why, my wife taught on it when I was in Africa. Why couldn't Jacob recant, or excuse me, Isaac recant his his? His, his blessing, because he, he made a vow. He said, I've blessed your brother. There's nothing left to give you. And truly, he'll be blessed. If he was a Southern Baptist or a Pentecostal today, oh, come back. Let's do it over. Let's call let, Family meeting. I misspoke. That's how degenerate our word has gotten 5,000 years later. Isaac declared it and said, I can't unchange it. I can't undeclare it. Your brother's blessed. He's got the blessing. He'll be blessed. Let me see if I can scrape the bottom of the barrel and find something to give you. Wouldn't be us today because our words are that devalued. We, we speak and pray with Zim dollars. Why does it take so long to receive healing? Because we speak and pray with Zim dollars. They said, 
at the height when Mugabe died about three or four years ago. Uh, but before they went back to the RAND, the South African RAND and the U.S. dollar, they would have to load their trunk up with trash bags full of Zim dollars to go to the grocery store. And then they said, and then that would only buy you the dust on the shelves because there was no food to be had. Can you imagine having to have trillions of dollars in your trunk just to go grocery shopping? When one dollar will buy us a loaf of bread. It'd take, you know, a billion Zim dollars. Why does it take so long to receive healing? Why does it take so long to receive deliverance? Why does it take so long? Why? Because we are spending Zim dollars. And so we have to add it up, add it up. I believe I receive, 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 I believe I receive. I'll be home by seven. 7.45 rolls around. We keep devaluing the words of our mouth. Nobody trusts us. God doesn't trust us. We don't trust us. Don't trust me. I'm not going to keep my promises. We got to do better than this, church. We have a higher standard. Let your yes be yes. I mean, I love that the Lord Jesus looks at all these verses in the Torah and says, I'll summarize it for you. Yes, yes, no, no. Other than that, you're evil. Be free. <laughs> Look at Psalm 76. Vows are promises we make to God. I will be there Sunday night, God. Oh, I'll be there Sunday night. Lord, I need you to deliver my baby. I need you. I'll be there Sunday Oh, Lord, I'll, I'll start paying the tithe. Because some of you are still thieves, by the way. I'll start paying my tithe. Oh, God, I promise you, that's a vow. I'll start coming to noonday prayer. I'll start reading my Bible every day. That vow is like a, a Weight Watchers New Year's resolution. You know, it won't even make it to the January 31st. Numbers, excuse me, Psalm, Psalm 76, verse 11. Vow, and then ask God to forgive you because he knew you didn't really mean it. Psalm 76, 11. Vow and pay unto the Lord your God. Let all that be round about him bring presents unto him that ought to be feared. It's real simple. Here's the doctrine of making promises to God. Pay up. Keep your word. If you told the Lord you'd do something, you'd do it. Our relationship with God requires us to make promises to him, just like your relationship with your spouse requires you to make promises to your spouse. That's part of daily communication. So we shouldn't think of vows as some kind of big special once-in-a-lifetime thing. With, with my relationship with my wife, honey, I'll be home after this meeting, or honey, I'm, I'm going to come home after this, or I'll be there, or I'll get that on the way home, or I'll pick that up. That's, that's, those are giving vows, in a sense, to my wife. I pay them. Other, if I don't, then I'm a deadbeat husband. How many Christians are deadbeat saints? Because we talk to God, we make all these promises. He requires us to do stuff. We don't do any of it. Ecclesiastes, let's turn there, chapter 5. Ecclesiastes, looking real quick as we summarize the doctrine of vows. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 4. Ecclesiastes 5, 4. When you vow a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. So... How does God view us? How many, this is going to be all of us, but just if you're thinking here while I'm preaching, we've made a commitment to God that we never kept. Or we started to and didn't fulfill it. So he calls us a fool. 
I thought I was the friend of God. <laughs> Friends don't lie to each other. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. There in that verse are our two ditches, the noncommittal and the overcommittal. How about go right down the middle, vow it and pay it. Vow it and pay it. This has been bugging me a little bit because we think God is all merciful. He's long-suffering. He's not forever suffering. He said in Ezekiel, I searched for a man to stand in the gap, but I could find no man. How many of those men did he visit and they made a vow, but they never fulfilled it? And then he moved on to the next guy. How long did he give each person to answer him and obey before he moved on and replaced them and ultimately came up with no man to stand in the gap? And the thing that strikes me is all those men that said, Lord, I'll stand in the gap, but didn't, they all suffered the judgment God asked them to defer. So let's think about this. God asks us to do something. We commit, but by not obeying, we may be the victim of our own laziness the victim of our own noncommittal, the victim of our own broken word. He don't know what he's asking us that we're going to commit to, but if we don't fulfill it, what will that bring upon us that he was trying to prevent? We have to be men and women of our word. Look at Isaiah chapter 19. One more verse, and we're going to look at oaths real quick with the next 10 minutes. Isaiah chapter 19. This is a passage about the future coming destiny of Egypt. Isaiah chapter 19. Just so you can see that we're not free from vows. If you walk with God, you're giving him your word and he's taking you at your word. He said, you're, by your words, you're justified. By your words, you're condemned. So we need to make sure we keep the commitments of our mouth. Verse, verse 19, in that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. That day has not happened yet. And a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. And it shall be a sign, for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors, and he shall send them a Savior. Egypt's going to get a Savior. I think he's already come. His name is Jesus. And a great one. There's no greater Savior than Jesus. And he shall deliver them. And the Lord shall be known to Egypt. If you haven't been to Egypt lately, I haven't ever been, period. It's not exactly Christian. The Lord shall be known to Egypt. That day has not happened yet. And the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yes, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord and perform it. This is talking about the, the coming revival for Egypt one day and the prophetic whenever that takes place. But he says that the Lord will be known among them. And one of the ways the Lord's known among them and they demonstrate their knowledge of God is that they pay offerings and they keep their vows. So summarize it this way. If we say, Lord, we're going to do something. Lord, I'm going to come to noonday prayer. Lord, I'm going to be at 530 prayer with Mr. Marlin. Lord, I, Lord, I know you're dealing with me about healing school or serving in the children's department. Lord, I know you're dealing with me about going door to door evangelizing. I'll do it, Lord. That's a vow. And now you're bound. And you must perform the words of your mouth. And if you will, it'll only bless you. I think we understand as a culture how flippant we are about our words. We don't really expect anybody to keep their word to us because we're not really planning on keeping our word to anybody else. So that brings us to the oaths, 
vows we vow to God, oaths we swear to men. And really what we do is just let our yes be yes and our no be no. There is a bit of a spectrum for the words, the commitments, the covenants of the Old Testament. It ought to just be our word spoken. But then God comes along and recognizes man's word isn't much good. So then men would begin to swear by their gods. So Exodus 20, verse 7, one of the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not swear by my name falsely. You can swear, Old Testament, you can swear by the name of God, just don't do it falsely. That becomes blasphemy. Blasphemy isn't just bloody or JC or GD. Blood, uh, blasphemy is technically you invoke God's name upon your commitment because your word's no good and then you don't keep it. So now you make God look like a fool. So one of the things the Old Testament uh, believers had to do is because their word wasn't good enough and then they would swear by God, like, like Samson said, swear by God that you won't deliver me into the hands of the Philistines. We swear. Because that was broken over and over again. Then they would swear to God upon invocation of a curse. I swear by the God of heaven that I will not betray you lest the dogs consume me. Well, how come you can't just say, I won't betray you? How come nowadays we can't just say, I'll be there for you? How come, how come we have to have reminders? As leadership, we have to send out reminders because our word isn't important enough to remember ourselves. If you give your word and you're like God, you watch over it. You put a reminder in your own phone for your own sake. Now, I'm not against reminders, but what does it say when we can't remember what we committed to? So somebody else who needs us, who's banking on us, has to send us reminders because we're not mindful. This has got to change. Talking about coming up higher in Christ. Christians ought to be known for their word. They ought to be the most committed people. Instead of just exploiting people's good graces and their mercy. and Oh, we love Bob. He's just never going to be here for us. Deuteronomy 6 tells us God gives permission. He tells Israel, you will swear by my name. Because he didn't want them swearing by anybody else's name. He gave them permission to swear. Exodus 20 verse 7 says, just don't swear falsely. You can use my name, just don't do it falsely. Jesus comes along and says, don't swear at all. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Hebrews 6, 13 through 16, if you want to write this down, says that men swear by the greater. You have to swear by somebody greater than you. We even do it on the playground. I think I made this joke last time. We, we say, cross my heart, hope to die. See, cross my heart is the swear, the oath. Hope to die is the curse. Stick a needle in my eye. That's how we always did it on the playground. And unfortunately, even in my household, we play around in kids so much, even Bud Bud will go, for real life? Like, we're going to do this for real life? Because he doesn't believe our word. Because we kid so much. And sometimes he, some of it is also, he doesn't know what's reality. He watches cartoons like your kids do. He doesn't know what's real, what's imaginary. I hate it for kids because they got to navigate so much, but we watch CGI Superbook, which is all the stories of the Bible, and then we watch CGI Spider-Man. Is this for real, Daddy? That is not for real. Jonah is for real. 
We watch CGI dinosaurs. Is that for real? Well, dinosaurs were for real, but not like that. But Superbook is for real. It just looks like this Disney show. <laughs> but other than that, you know, your kids will say, do you mean it, Daddy? You promise? You promise, promise? That is an indictment on us. You promise, promise? I swear to you. Why do we have these words in our vernacular? Because we are liars. That's another one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not. And what does Revelation 19 say? Where do all liars go? Wow, I thought we were free under this new covenant. Do you see the weightiness that is keeping your word? to God and to one another. None of us are perfect at this. I'm not perfect at this at all. The higher up I go, the more I commit, the more things can fall through the cracks. I do remember being with Dr. Barclay. He was on a phone call or something. He chewed somebody out. They, I don't know who was on the other end. They got scorched earth on, on their rump. He said, I pay you to help me keep my word. And now you've, you've caused me to drop my words, and I'm not happy about this. Because I get it, you know, when you're like somebody who's overseeing hundreds of pastors, you have folks coming every day and you're trying to help them. So you're committing, 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 and you're writing it down and get them that, and get them that, get them that tape, get them that book, get them that connection. It's a lot to air traffic control. So nobody's perfect at it, but we ought to at least aim to be way better than our culture tolerates. Way, 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 way better. Psalm 15, and here's where I'm going to close. I got a bunch of other scriptures, but we're out of time. Psalm 15. So hopefully this is uh, helping you, convicting you. This is, I may hit this a couple more services so that we can have raw, fresh faith on it. That we need to be careful of what we're committing and what we're overcommitting to. And the answer isn't just drying up all your commitments and be committed to nothing. How about eliminate your downtime playing video games and social networking and actually make your promises come to pass. Maybe even on your phone when you make a commitment, write it down and review it every night till you make it come to pass because it will build your faith and promote your life to watch all of your promises come to pass in your life. Getting this check in the mail and getting that taken care of and helping this person and showing up there and being at this birthday when you said you'd be there and being at this practice when you said you'd be there and not just living by the seat of your pants with your hair and your underwear on fire, but being a, a focused, determined human being because you can't build with people you can't depend on. Numbers 15, verse 1. Lord, sorry, Psalms. Psalms 15, 1. Lord, who shall abide in your tabernacle? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? That's probably a pretty good question to ask. He answers his own questions. He that walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. There's three things that deal with character. So the second verse begins to answer the question. These are character. Righteous, righteous, righteous. You see the word righteous three times there. Uprightly, works righteousness, speaks the truth or what is right in his heart. So that's pretty good. Verse 3. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. Uh, so this verse 3 is all about how you treat someone outside of yourself. So we're looking at, okay, so how do you 
treat your neighbor. Well, you don't backbite, gossip, or slander. You don't do evil to them, and you don't take up a reproach against them. Number four, the person in whose eyes a vile person is contemned or condemned. The word vile there is a, is a broad term, but it's used over and over again. A vile person is someone who rejects the commandments of God. So, hey, let's tie that back to the prodigal real quick. Most prodigals are vile people. And this verse exalts our condemnation of vile people. We are to condemn them, to despise them, not cast them as enemies, but if they reject the things of God, we have nothing in common. You don't keep flirting with it. So who wants to dwell in the house of God, the tabernacle? Well, we got to, in our eyes, a vile person must be condemned. But he honors them that fears the Lord. That's who we honor, those that fear God. Red, yellow, black, white, Baptist, Church of Christ, Catholic. If they fear God, we respect them. Tongue-talking or not, we don't care about that. We want them to fear God. He that swears to his own hurt and changes not. We'd say it this way. He that keeps his word even when it costs him dearly. You want to dwell in the house of God? You want to be in his holy hill? Here's one of our requirements. You keep your word. You make a commitment and you keep it even if you're up till 2 a.m., even if it costs you more money than you thought, you keep it. If for some reason you need to be excused from it, you go and you seek an excuse. You go and say, please, would you relieve me of my obligation? Or how about you just make a phone call and say, hey, I can't make it. I had two flat tires and I threw up. I think they would give you forgiveness for that but don't just not show. We're merciful. Society is merciful. But we ought to be bending over backwards, scrapping to the best of our ability to make our word come to pass. And if it's impossible, then we say, oh, Lord, have mercy. Maybe I can get this excused and get it forgiven. And then we make it up because it ought to be important to us to keep our word. He that putteth not out his own money or his, out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent, this deals with money. He that does these things shall never be moved. So maybe if we'd go back and evaluate this ability to keep our word in our life, that might help us be a little bit unmovable. We could all use a little more stability in our life. I think some of us, we know that we're not worth our word, and so it really brings a lot of um, insecurity. But if you develop a lifestyle, if you said it, you'll do it. Then there's a lot of confidence knowing I keep my word. I keep my covenant. I keep my promises. You can bank on it. If I start it, I'm going to finish it. If I start a project, I'm going to finish it. It's not going to take six years and 60 grand. If I start it, I'm going to finish it. I'm not going to start another project until I finish the last project, says the Upper Cumberland Tinkerer with six cars on stilts and half a house half built with Tyvek instead of siding. Just got really dead in here again. Part of keeping your word is you finish your projects, men. Part of keeping your word is finishing your projects, men. Your wives don't want to live like white trash. My white privilege allows me to use the term white trash. <laughs> Nor do I want to raise my kids to live in white trash after me. So part of avoiding the white trash syndrome 
is you start a project. It looks like junk because it's a project. And then you bring it to completion in a timely manner, which is usually less than a year. You're snickering. I know the region I pastor in. I've seen churches blowing Tyvek for years. It's a disgrace to the authority of Christ. Number one, that the congregation won't cough up the money to finish it. Number two, the pastor won't see it till it gets done. We have to be better than this. We start what we finish. It's part of keeping our word. We start what we finish. It's part of keeping our word. And watch what it does to our faith when we need to cry out to something in the spirit realm. Like the man who said, I'm a man under authority. I say this and it gets done. Most of us would say, I'm an American. My word's worth junk. So God have mercy. That centurion knew exactly how to make things happen with his word. If he said it, it happened. Don't you know those soldiers underneath him knew how to make things happen too? Where's the body? Where's the army of the living God today? Empty promises, TikToking, and watching cat videos on Facebook. Where's the army of the living God today? We need it to stand up and do something. Amen.